And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Helps turn on the microphone. It is Thursday, the 22nd of October, the last day of the week for this show. Welcome, everyone. Jason Hunt here in the studio in the super secret underground bunker at World Headquarters here in Kansas City. The chat is open. The email address, if you want to leave us feedback that way, live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com, or if you want to suggest guests that we can invite onto the show. Uh, the comments are also open for anybody that wants to leave us their thoughts after the fact. If you're watching this in replay or listening to this in podcast form, uh, we do invite you to participate in the conversation as well. And if you are looking to uh, save a little money, let's mention our partnership over there with SuperheroStuff.com. 10% off when you use the promo code SciFi for me 10 and one quick note about tonight, the Walking and Rolling Costumes virtual party continues at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central. We are talking with families and volunteers about the work that they do over there, building costumes for kids with special needs, kids in wheelchairs, kids with walkers. It's a, uh, it's a fine endeavor. We do encourage you to check them out as well. And... Uh, I am in the process of writing reviews, and I'm going to get them up eventually at some point. I've got Superman, Man of Tomorrow, and James Cameron's story of science fiction that I've got to get, and hopefully have them up and running by the weekend. In the meantime, Mrs. Boss over there uh, diligently working on our Comic-Con reports as we get through new dates and schedule changes and whatnot. And in the meantime... And all of this lockdown and isolation and pandemic and whatnot, we continue to get very, very, very good at Zoom calls. And on today's Zoom call, joining us from the West Coast, way out west, Cat Rambo is here. Welcome. Good afternoon. Hello. It's still morning here on the <laughs> West Coast, but things are otherwise much the same, I suspect. Now, I understand you're in Portland, is that right? No, or right you're, now you're I'm in Seattle. You're in Seattle. You're I, moving I, to Portland. Okay. I'm in the process. Well, we're not sure anymore. It's <laughs> in the days of the pandemic. Everything yeah. is everywhere. So maybe we'll stay here. Maybe we'll go to Costa Rica. I don't know. So let me I, let me lead with the most important couple of items. One, how is your bonsai tree? It is doing well. And I just uh, did some little pine trees last night and put them in what my spouse calls the torture pots because he <laughs> says bonsai is all about torturing the plants, which is really kind of, and it's not the way I like to think about it. But well, you, yes. you do have um, to tease it into a particular shape, right? Is, yeah. I don't know anything about bonsai trees, so I'm asking a, a, an ignorant question there probably, but. Well, you, you do put them in very uh, shallow pots and your 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 aim is actually now that i think about it to kind of stunt them and thwart them so they become miniature trees mm. so yeah uh, torture pots yeah and and the other kind of pot coffee pots i understand you roast your own coffee out there how, how does I how do. did that go how did you get uh, into those lovely. things 
Um, I think what happened with the coffee was, as what happens sometimes, you're poking around on the internet instead of working. And I read an article that said, you can roast your own coffee beans with a hot air popcorn popper. And I have, I like to thrift shop and I knew that this was something you could go to any thrift shop and usually find four or five uh, popcorn poppers somewhere back in the shelves. And so I started trying it kind of just to see what that was like. And the coffee's much better. It's just really, really lovely to, in fact, the coffee I'm drinking right now, I roasted out on the porch uh, yesterday because you let the beans sit for a day and it is delicious. We have frequently made the joke about how our shows are fueled by coffee and we need to find us a, a coffee sponsor. But maybe we ought to maybe we ought to start looking into to sci-fi for me brand coffee and and do our own possibly. I think it'd be a blast to do. Mm -hmm. I, I actually joked with a friend that I I would like to be the person writing the catalog for a set of of I don't know can I say this story like cannabis is legal out here mm -hmm. and I think it would be funny to be the person be kind of like the Jay Peterman uh, writer of those. <laughs> And you have like the Philip K. Dick sativa and all of that. That would be fun. Now I know because there are, we have done in the past, we had a contributor that, that put together uh, articles with recipes for various different alcoholic beverages that were based on things that were found in, in uh, different genre stories. So you might be onto something there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so let's let's start by way of introduction here. Cat Rambo is a Nebula Award-winning author, fantasy, science fiction, short stories, and novels, both. Two-time president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Uh, you also have been a technical writer, I believe, from Microsoft. Is that right? And mm -hmm. you've also been in games. Yes. So how did all of that get started? What was your path from Cat Rambo, normal person, to Cat Rambo, uh, <laughs> geek and science fiction and fantasy writer? Well, I think a lot of it was a bookstore and game store in the neighborhood when I was a kid that I ended up working at, uh, that I ended up in high school. I played there every Wednesday Thursday and Friday night, and then Saturday afternoons, uh, the Griffin Bookstore in South Bend, Indiana, uh, which is still around. Uh, and that really made me love uh, fantasy and science fiction. I knew that I wanted to write, and I got kind of, I did get kind of sidetracked at one point, so I went and worked for Microsoft, and that was how I ended up out here in Seattle. Uh, but at one point, I thought I was not particularly happy working in a corporate structure. And my spouse said he was willing to pay the mortgage and take care of insurance uh, stuff for a while if I wanted to explore writing. And so I started doing that. And you are a graduate, I believe, of the Clarion West Workshop, which is uh, one of Vonda McIntyre's uh, projects. And how did how did you find that? Because there are there are a number of workshops around, and now it seems like there's a proliferation of places oh, where yeah. you can go for that kind of thing. What drew oh, you yeah. to Clarion West? Um, well, Clarion West was here local to Seattle, which was great. It meant I didn't have to fly across the country. It meant that uh, if I needed to, I could come home and and pet my cats and go back uh, renewed. Um, Clarion West still remains, I think, one of the gold standards of, of 
writing workshops and it is a kind of prolonged uh, six week thing where one of the things that happened for me was that I would go to the parties and people would wander up and go, you know, Clarion West breaks some people. And I'd be like, oh, what do you mean? And they would say, they would explain that uh, you got so much information thrown at you that some people, it just paralyzed them and it took them a while to process it. And there was a sort of dire implication that at least once every year, there was someone who went and flung themselves into a volcano out of despair or something like that. Um, but my nature is such that if you present me with a challenge, I usually try to rise to it. So I tried to uh, keep writing after Clarion West. And because I'd been doing a story a week, I kept producing a story uh, each week while working on a novel. So for me, Clarion West was great. And I still do volunteer work with, with Clarion West sometimes. I still teach for them sometimes. I think Clarion West is awesome. It was great. And, and some people, you know, anything, right? Any writing workshop. Some right. people it's going to work super well for. Some people it's going to be terrible. Uh, in, and I think one of the things that people have to think about is, is what's it like? Uh, is it, can they take six weeks off? Well, and, and you have a workshop of your own, the Rambo mm -hmm. Academy. And uh, that, is, that is a place here where you've got a number of, of workshops. Uh, is this... Uh, using the same techniques that you'd find at some place like Clarion West, did you come up with your own curriculum? How did you determine what courses you teach, and and at what point did you decide? You know, I think I know enough that I could start sharing it with other people. Uh, so I had when I was in grad school, I was teaching uh, English or teaching composition and creative writing to freshmen, so I was already went into it uh, fairly arrogant uh, in terms of enough uh, teaching experience. But my friend Louise Marley was teaching a six-week class for Bellevue Community College over here in the Redmond area. And she said, I don't, basically she didn't have the bandwidth for it anymore and asked me if I wanted to do it. And I started teaching it and taught it, I think three or four years. And at one point looked at my paycheck and then looked at the amount that Bellevue Community College, I probably shouldn't name them this, but that basically that they were charging people for the workshop. And I thought, well, there's a big discrepancy here. And at the same time, I had a lot of people that were coming up and saying, I really wanna take your workshop, but I'm not in your area. So it was right around that time that Google Hangouts came out. And I thought, well, Google Hangouts seems to offer everything I want, right? I could set up a, a meeting with a bunch of other people and I could teach. And it, it later on, it came to the point where it also offered the ability to record it. And it was just great. So I started doing that 10 years ago. And then a few years into doing it, I asked my friend Ann Leckie, uh, who'd gone through Clarion West with me, if she would come and do a class on space opera. And Anne said, sure. And she came and did the workshop and I started asking other people. Uh, I, I'm very lucky, lucky in terms of the number of contacts uh, that I have. And so this year is the 10th year, in fact, of the Rambo Academy for Wayward Writers. And the live classes that we're offering include uh, Sarah Pinsker's teaching one, Tobias Bacal, uh, Jose Pablo Iriarte, uh, El McKinney. I just got her to uh, agree to do a class on urban fantasy. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, and I've just been so lucky in terms of the people that have come to teach for me. 
And it also means that I'm taking classes because I'm facilitating it and I can just sit back and listen. And sometimes I'm taking notes so I can live tweet what's going on. Uh, so boy, it, it helped. This is my secret weapon is that I am basically putting uh, 10 hours a week into studying writing as well as doing it. Now, live tweet, you are on Twitter uh, at Cat Rambo. We'll go ahead and throw that up here for just a second. But let me ask you, because I see on the on the list, the curriculum here, uh, a class on podcasting for writers. And yes. we were talking a little bit, you know, the proliferation of Zoom and Google Meet and, and StreamYard and all of these different video conferencing tools. Has how much... And I guess maybe it's a generational thing more than anything else because I see a lot of uh, you know a lot of studies about the younger people that are a little bit more wired in and and connected and able to do all of this stuff, and the older generation is kind of like, well, what the heck is this? Where do I push this button? Um, has has the transition to online conferencing? You know, you mentioned having a, a number of connections. I imagine through the SFWA, there's a lot of people that are having this conversation about how to do this. Are there a lot of people that are having trouble adjusting? Yeah, and it, it's interesting for me because sort of chronologically, I'm actually in that resistant generation, I think. But I've always worked in technology and I've always enjoyed gadgets and, you know, I know how to code. And, and so I'm a little bit uh, more adept. But yeah, right now, the thing for writers is discoverability. And if you want to sell books, right, you, you have to somehow get your name above that sea of stuff that's out there. And I think that for writers that become adept at Zoom, uh, become adept with technology, uh, who are willing to try new stuff. I mean, like I've got a YouTube channel. It is, it is like the world's most informal YouTube channel. It is not professionally produced. I mean, the big joke is that I go, the informal, the, inf <laughs> the charm of it is the crude, crude attempts at uh, video production that I make. I'm getting better at it though. Uh, but I think that the writers that are willing to put themselves out into social media and willing to experiment and I'm going to say, like, I tried a TikTok thing. I, actually, I'm not going to tell you I tried a TikTok thing because, <laughs> like, no, I did. And, like, some, I did a terrible job at it because I was like, I don't really understand TikTok. I'll use these animated tools and do something and put it up. And immediately, uh, some kid posted, like, what the f well and and we've had we've had conversations about the various different social media channels that we're on yeah. and and there is a proliferation of it our social media ecosystem is large enough now that i'm looking at some of these new ones and people have asked are you on snapchat or it was like no we're not doing snapchat we're not doing tiktok uh we have we have looked at some of the other ones that are on the on the periphery sort of not necessarily as a preemptive, just in case type of thing, but you know, Gab, Me, We Minds, all of those. But when you know, I looked at Parlor and I'm like, no, we we don't we got oh, yeah. too many as it yeah. is. Well, you know, our Pinterest is dedicated to cosplay, so we're trying. I'm I'm trying to kind of niche some of them, yeah. but it's still there's too many of them, and well, I'm like, yes. there's there's too many, but I think one thing you want to do is kind of secure your presence on these networks so nobody goes and pretends to be you yeah uh, because that can be 
distressing. But you can also automate a lot of this stuff. I mean, I, I like the approach of making everything different. But the other thing that springs to mind is you're you're giving yourself more work if you're True. not being like, OK, uh, here's what happens on Twitter and it just gets replicated to Facebook or whatever, uh, which is what I do uh, simply because I'm lazy. Uh, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. And I just it's so easy with social media to get super concerned with it. Right. Yeah. And I think this is where a lot of new writers go awry where they're just like, oh, I need to have a Facebook page. I need to have Twitter and I need to have Pinterest. And my theory is that you should only do the stuff that you're having fun with. You know, like my Instagram is basically, I, I periodically go out for walks and I photograph flowers or I photograph my cat being poked uh, because she makes a nice chirpy noise when you poke her. <laughs> uh, but I don't work too hard at it. Well, it, it does. It does. And, and looking at your, your YouTube channel, you've got videos of, of you doing readings, you're interviewing other people. And it seems like that's that's something that a lot of authors probably still need to get. I don't want to say they need to get better at it, but uh, I mentioned before we went on the air, I was talking to Ann Crispin. Uh, when her Pirates of the Caribbean book came out, and she was talking about how in the traditional public, uh, publishing side of things, the onus of marketing has shifted to the author. The author is responsible for a great deal more of that load in terms of getting the, getting the word out, doing the marketing, doing the publicity, doing the press junkets and the interviews and, the, and that kind of thing. Is that... Uh, how much of a challenge is that for new authors to come in and sit there and go, oh my, I didn't realize I had to do all of this. I just want to write the story. Well, you're still going to get hopefully less of that in traditional publishing than say indie publishing, mm -hmm. where you're doing 100% of it. Um, I think that if you are someone who enjoys social media and can create a presence on there that's a definite plus but the thing about social media is you shouldn't force it right because if you've got somebody who's you know like on twitter just because they're like i i freaking hate twitter but i'm still on there it comes through right it and nobody's going to follow a Twitter stream that's nothing but, you know, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. It is, it is something that has to kind of, I, I think, be at least natural feeling. Mm -hmm. And some people are better at simulating the, that than others. Uh, but certainly, if you're not enjoying it, I think that's energy you should put into writing instead. Uh, on the flip side of that, you mentioned, you know, some of these channels being, you know, st strictly promotional, buy my book, buy my book. Mm -hmm. On the mm -hmm. flip side of that, is there some, is there something to be said for needing restraint on some of these accounts? Because especially in, in, in the way things are now, uh, a lot of people look at Twitter and they say, oh, dumpster fire, I don't want anything to do with it. And there's a lot of personal attacks and, and back and forth and neener, neener, neener and all of that. With, with independent creators, and, and this is the question that I see a lot, especially in terms of comic books, where you have people that are independent contractors for the publishers. They work for themselves. And so their accounts 
are their personal accounts, but right. they're also associated with a brand. And so the the question then is how much of your social media should be you and how much of your social media should be your work, especially if you're an independent person? Does it make a difference? Does that matter? Yeah. And this, this is a question that uh, my husband and I have had a uh, discussion we've had in the past in that he, he said, uh, why are you political on Twitter? Because I'm pretty outspokenly uh, political on Twitter. And my feeling, A, I try to be super positive about stuff. I mean, you know, my political efforts are more like, hey, here's an informational resource than a, you know, attacks on people. I try to be like, here, I'm spreading the word of good stuff. Here, I'm trying to spread the word of resources. But somebody who's going to get irritated by the fact that I, let's say, uh, supported, uh, posted something supporting uh, trans causes. Uh, and if somebody who's going to get angry at me about that is probably not somebody who's going to enjoy my work. Right. Uh, and I'm, I think it's important enough for creators to speak up about stuff that I am willing to face the fact that, you know, I, I've got a little gang of alt-right trolls that follows me around and I just like, yeah, okay, you guys, <laughs> enjoy what you're doing. Um, I, I think the important thing is if nobody's going to follow you if you're being toxic on Twitter, or at least the people that follow you if you're being toxic on Twitter, and there are people whose, whose brand is that, yeah. uh, are those, A, are those people you really want to have as your buddies? And B, I don't know how many books they buy. Do you have, are you, have you had an opportunity, are you talking about having that conversation at home? Do you have moments where you look back at your social media and think, eh, maybe I shouldn't have posted that, or maybe, maybe I should take that one down. Are there, are there social media regrets for Cat Rambo? Oh, I think there's a couple. And, and I think uh, most of them revolve around moments where I didn't realize that I accidentally hurt somebody with my words. Uh, where I perhaps promoted a resource and didn't understand that it had uh, something in it that would somebody would hit and then go, oh, I feel, you know, you, you don't want to hurt people, basically. Right. And, and so, but you're going to. Uh, and one of the things that I try not to do is if I am tweeting because I'm angry, I go take a walk. Uh, it, it, at least that's that's my attempt and if somebody comes swinging at me usually what i do is is just ignore them and i take every trolling attempt as a reminder to go uh message somebody that i appreciate or celebrate somebody or just you know text text a friend and say hey i just want you to know i think you're awesome uh and i think that's social media is great if you're being positive sure but it can be so toxic and i i think for writers actually to participate in that is utterly inappropriate. Now, are there, are there times where it, and, and I've seen this uh, myself on, on various different discussions, it seems like there is a certain group of people 
uh, not necessarily aligned with any particular ideology, but in all aspects of the conversation, there are these people who are going to take offense on purpose just because. Uh, have, have you run into a lot of that? Is, is, because you talk about trying to be well, sensitive to, to other people's feelings. There are people who are going to get offended just because they want to. See, I'm very careful. I'm, I'm wary of that phrase because that gets used sometimes to punish people for speaking out in situations that are, in fact, really difficult. Uh, sometimes to be the person to speak out about something uh, is a, an incredibly brave act. Right. And so I don't want to encourage any rhetoric. Uh, there are people who uh, will take a very simple thing and will take offense at it, who will take, for example, uh, one of the things I saw when, uh, what was it? Uh, when Women uh, Destroy Fantasy, uh, I edited uh, that magazine. Mm -hmm in that particular issue. And there were people who were very offended uh, that I would, you know, that, that, that basically that submissions were open only to women. And so a bunch of them like tried to sneak in with stories and tried to, you know, and which was just like, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's always gonna be people who are like, I'm gonna use this as a reason to, to further dissension, mm -hmm. right? I'm gonna take this, I'm gonna exaggerate this. I'm gonna take this and, uh, you know, th there is that personality where if you step on their foot, they act as though their foot is broken. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be careful of stepping on feet, right? You don't want to get a reputation for seat being somebody who's, who's merrily marching through the crowd. Sure. It's no, like it's soccer fair. players, right? Like soccer players, when they get fouled and they're like, ah! Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned you mentioned posting resources on, on your Twitter feed. Let me let me uh, uh, pivot to that here for a moment. The writer, the writer Beware site. Has that proven to still be useful in this day and age where everybody's, oh, you don't want to you don't want to do business with them. You don't want to go over there. Are, is that still is that still something oh, that has a, a good? It's absolutely yeah. because sometimes when people like sometimes if you go and rely on gossip for stuff, you're going to get the wrong impression, right? You're going right. to get somebody who has a personal grudge. You're going to get somebody who's you know all of that. And writer beware goes in very dispassionately investigate stuff. I mean, I trust Writer Beware, and it's it's someone, uh, that's a site that I always send people to, because Writer Beware keeps in mind uh, the fact that there's a ton of scammers out there, right? There are so many people that want to take advantage of other people's dreams, and Writer Beware is really good about calling those out. Uh, one of the things that was interesting about being CIFA president, in fact, was periodically we would get people who would try to come after writer beware legally in one way or another. And my policy as CIFWA president was to respond to those uh, very assertively and very almost aggressively and just let people know that no, this was not an entity that they were gonna, I mean, they were gonna, I'm sorry. Right. Uh, but basically, I think it's really important that writer beware exists. And it is, it is, we've mentioned Ann Crispin before, and it's one of Ann's greatest legacies. And I'm so pleased to see that legacy continuing. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in that, in that particular case, you have a lot of publishers that are, 
you know, the established ones, you've got the ones that are sketchy, you know, the writer beware is, is looking at some of those, but now you have all of these self-publishing options. Yeah. Yeah. You know, create space and, and that sort of thing. Is that a, is that a plus or a minus net value for uh, genre publishing? Because if I'm doing it all myself, I don't have editorial services. I don't have, you know, I've got beta readers maybe, uh, edit, editors, you've got copy editors, you've got story editors that costs money. Then you've got all the publication and all of that is, is it best or I don't want to say, is it best? Uh, are there advantages to going the regular usual publishing route over self-publishing? There, there's pros and cons for both. I would imagine. This this is something I feel uh, particularly impassioned about because one of the things that I did as CIFA president was make sure that independently published people could come in uh, as members to CIFA, right? You have to be kind of deemed a professional writer. You have to be making a certain amount of money in order to, to join. And bringing those indie writers in was, I think, one of the smartest things the organization could have done uh, because it, we had a massive influx of energy and enthusiasm and experience. And I think that indie publishing done right is amazing. I think that indie publishing, in fact, that's one of the places where you see some really experimental, cool, interesting stuff happening. And it's happening there because the traditional publishing what it's doing is it's looking at that and going, we don't know how to market this uh, because they've got lots to choose from, right? They're always going to go for the one that they're like, okay, we understand how to market this versus, right. you know, so I, I, I think this is one of the reasons why I mentioned earlier, discoverability matters so much though, is because there is a huge pool of genuine crud out there a certain amount of traditional publishing crud too, right? Right. I mean, if we're gonna be honest about it. <laughs> well, and and it seems to I me, mean, and and you know, I have had discussions with. Uh, a number of first-time authors, and you know, we've had we've had a number of them as guests on this show, talking about mm -hmm. the fact that it's their first time and all of the experiences they've they've had, the learning process, you know, the learning curve on doing this kind of thing. Uh, is is there some resource? I mean, is there an easy place? Uh, this you're about to birth your first book. Here are some of the things you need to know. I mean, I'm sure that there are some workshops that cover that kind of thing. But I don't see a whole lot of, uh, in terms of the the marketing and publicity aspects of things. I see a lot of, here's how to write the book, here's how to structure it, here's how to paginate, here's how to prep it for, for publishing and printing and all of those things, cover art and, and whatnot. But getting into the nuts and bolts and nitty-gritty of marketing and publicity, there seems to be less of a, of a tutorial resource for that. Is that something that you think might need to be addressed more or am I just missing it somewhere? It's there no, and I, I don't see it. I think you're totally right. And, and then in fact, I've got two people teaching classes for me that try to address this. Uh, one is Catherine Lundoff uh, is teaching book promotion on a budget. And so she is, she is super experienced and she can tell you kind of how to make the most of your money. 
because usually, you know, you're not self-publishing and going, okay, I've got $20,000 that I want to just throw into this project and not worry about <laughs> 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 um, And the other uh, class, which I, I need to actually talk to Mike about rescheduling this, is Mike uh, Underwood uh, has basically been doing, he's one of the world's greatest hand sellers. He's just one of the world's greatest booksellers altogether. He just naturally sells books when he's just breathing. Uh, so he's, we put together a pandemic version of that because one of the things uh, that writers don't have available right now is we can't go to conventions and stand at tables and say, hey, I will sign your book and chit chat with you if you, you know, buy mine right now. Does it help um, to be a part of a group like Wordfire or or Crazy Eight because you have uh, Wordfire itself has a presence at the conventions and a lot mm -hmm. of the authors will all be there in the same spot. Mm -hmm. So there's this this shared burden, I guess you would say, of of the publicity costs and the expense of actually getting a space and, and a booth. Right. Is, right. is it better to do that or, or go out on your own and get your own table or sit down and, and sit there by yourself or does, does it change with the circumstances? So my, my answer is going to be sort of uh, between the two, which is, yeah, yeah, get your own table, but share it. Uh, get together a group of uh, four or five other authors and say, we're going to do a table uh, we're all going to sell our books. We're going to take it in shifts. And that way, you know, people can run off and get lunch and, and do all of that. And then, and then know each other's books and be ready to sell each other's books. Uh, you know, as you're standing there, I did this with a couple of people uh, a few years ago at NorwestCon. And uh, I love standing with uh, Kay Kenyon because somebody comes up to look at Kay's books and boy, I love her work. So I'm ready to spring into gear and go, you need that one and that one and that one. And that's really good. And uh, that's, I think, one of the resources that uh, people overlook is look, find, build yourself a cohort, build yourself a group of people who are willing to, to support your efforts and uh, promote you. I mean, one of the things that we do in my virtual campus, we've got a Discord server where we do a lot of uh, talking and stuff. And there's a channel called Promote This. And if somebody's got something they want everybody to promote, uh, they stick the link in there. And people try to be good about that. And when I'm compiling my links list at the end of the week, I pull from that. And that's what you want to do. Uh, create a community. Uh, the days when a writer could sort of drop off a manuscript and just be like, okay, I've, I've left my, my baby on the mountaintop and an eagle will take it away and, and take care of publishing it are gone. Yeah. Unless you are somebody at like, you know, Bill Gibson level or, you know, one of the top tier writers. The fact of the matter nowadays is a lot of the marketing has shifted onto us and that is totally unfair. And it is really unfair to the people who have social anxiety or trouble speaking or, you know, just feel like they lack charisma. And the answer to that is, is gang up. A group form a cohort. Is that easier to do nowadays or is that more of a challenge nowadays that you think? Because, you know, 
with all of the isolation that that we're having to deal with now, a lot of this we're having to do, you know, online connections and whatnot. I would imagine it opens up the potential to make connections that you normally would not make in in other parts of the world. But at the same time, you're not making a personal in-person connection that's, you know, you're in that same space. How much of a difference does that make, do you think? I think that nowadays it's easier. I, I would argue that it's easier to network than it ever has been. And that uh, being able to do stuff on Zoom calls is, is just huge. And I don't see people exploiting it yet the way that I think it will end up getting exploited. And for example... I just taught a six week short story workshop and I taught two sections of it. And I basically created a channel on the discord and I was like, this is you guys' channel. You can talk about class assignments. And so it was two groups that were each having a uh, once a week, three hour set clash session with me. Right. So they, right. they knew each other's faces and those groups have formed, they've kept the channel. They had their own little crit group. They have formed their own little cohort and I have had that happen before with classes. When people take particularly uh, multi-session classes, they form a little group. It's a little bit like summer camp. They were all at summer camp together. And, and it's easier to keep in touch with the people from summer camp than it ever was before. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's super cool to me when I teach these classes is I have people from Finland and, and, and Russia and Australia. And I'm just like, holy smokes, this is just amazing. Uh, you mentioned not being able to get to the conventions right now, sitting at tables and, and that sort of thing. I have uh, been able to look in on a number of different virtual events uh, uh -huh. since March. We've been reporting here on the various different schedule changes and all of the events that are going virtual and everything. And we're we're up to something like... 14 or 1500 different events that have changed right. some way, whether they're canceling yeah. or they're going virtual. But I look at the virtual events. I look at stuff like New York Comic Con or San Diego Comic Con and what they tried to do with their Comic Con online this year. And then I look at something like DC's Fandom, which to me just knocked it out of the park. And yeah. I look at some of these other events that are trying to do the online thing and swing and a miss in a lot of cases are, 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 are <laughs> how do, how do we get, uh, how, how do you overcome the challenge of this new thing? Because I remember when we broadcast from Worldcon here in Kansas City in 2016, we had a number of conversations uh, early with the committees trying to explain what we had in mind because it had never been done before. It hasn't been done since. And a lot of the questions were, you want to do what now? You Wait, you're, you're talking about what? And it was, I think we were two days into the event when the lights started going off and everybody was like, oh, you're live? You're right on the air right now? Can we do interviews? And... But that's, you know, broadcasting live from the floor of the event. And now you're talking about online panels. And, and I would imagine moving forward, even if things go back to quote-unquote normal, conventions are going to have to consider some kind of online aspect of this because there are going to be people, okay, everything's fine, we've got a green light, everything's back to normal. There are going to be some people that still sit there and go, it's a crowd, I'm not going yet. 
And those people have always been denied the conventions. And this is one of the really cool things. Uh, the people that didn't, you know, because conventions, conventions are expensive. It, yeah. is, it is a hotel. It is airfare. It is highly priced meals at, uh, you know, in a venue where it's a bunch of people ready to make money off the convention goers. I mean, look at Gen Con in Indianapolis. It is, it is a freaking industry. Um, the people with social anxiety, the people for who have a disability, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of times conventions have been super bad about accessibility issues. Uh, think about a few years ago at Saratoga Springs, uh, there was a world fantasy where there was a participant who was in a wheelchair and basically rather than provide a ramp, the convention said, hey, we're going to have you just down on the ground and your other folks are going to be up on the podium. And luckily all the participants that. said, no, we're going to go down to where she is. Yeah, uh, You know, this is a very cool thing. I mean, and, and I think more than anything, bringing in the fans who don't have hundreds of dollars to throw at the process is just awesome. I think that is amazing. And boy, I hope that sticks around. Now, boy, do you think that will help with future events like Worldcon? Because I look at the Hugo numbers and, I, and I've, I've, got, I've, I've pulled up the reports going all the way back to 2010. And the participation numbers in the Hugo votes are, you know, 1,300, 2,000, 2,200. There's one year, there's over 5,000 with all of the puppy stuff that was going on. Right, that's, right. An, that's an outlier. It's a blip. And then it drops right back down. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like the interest in the general public in Worldcon is maybe not so much that it could be. Sure. And then I sure. look at, you know, when we were there, I was looking at the people that are participating. Are there's really not a delicate way to put this. Are are the is the literary crowd aging out for some of these events? Because I didn't see a whole lot of young people at Worldcon. It's so I, I'm actually writing an essay for someone uh, right now about this. And and I think absolutely we've had this uh, structure where conventions, while simultaneously going, oh, I don't understand the grain of fandom and kind of wringing their hands, mm-hmm. and at the same time, shutting out uh, kind of the young folk. And one of the basic ways that they've been shutting them out is not acknowledging the fact that here in America, young folk are not, they don't have the same economic circumstances. Uh, that, that I mean, like, this is... Think of how much college tuition is right now versus how much it was when I was coming through. So I think uh, having the Hugo votes more accessible to anyone with, say, you know, 30 bucks to cover a membership uh, and getting value for that, right? Getting, you know, a chance to participate in panels, a chance to, to see the signings and all of that stuff. I think that's enormous. And I would love to see the Hugos. I would like to see the Hugos with like 10,000 votes. I, I think that'd be amazing. It's funny you mentioned the, the value of things because when I, when I have conversations about online, online convention tracks with other people, that's one of the things that invariably comes up is 
how you how you assign a value to whatever it is that you're making available online mm -hmm. and how do you make that distinct enough from whatever's going on at the event that it you know the two don't cancel each other out or you know there's something there but then you also have the people who are in panels and and this is more on the hollywood side of things than anything but your appearance fees and it affects yeah. contracts yeah. and all that yeah. kind of thing yeah so I'm I'm wondering I don't think that there's going to be one one of these one size fits all answers for this but it's certainly something that I think convention organizers right. are going to have to consider. Right. And I I'm going to argue that the comic cons are a very different beast than say WorldCon. Oh, unquestionably. Uh, that, and one of the things that I would think about when people are charging fees is in fact like WorldCon is running very much on volunteer labor. And it, I, I'm going to say making money off volunteer labor uh, is kind of unscrupulous to me. So if people are doing more than, hey, this is how much we need in order to keep things running and maybe pass on a little money to the next con or something in the way that it was passed on to us, I think, and, and that is one of the reasons why I think if you are charging a membership fee that is several hundred dollars because you've got to pay for the hotel and the banquet and uh, the wheelchair ramps and all of that. I, if you're doing a virtual event, that fee better fricking come down or I've got some serious questions. Right. Well, and I think too, it, it seems like the more, the more we do this kind of thing, and I've seen various different organizations, wizard world being one galaxy con, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Silicon, all, all, bringing in celebrities, bringing in guests, doing the Q&As yeah. and the virtual panels and such. And I think as people get more used to the idea that maybe, you know, maybe the contracts start to reflect that. But uh, in, in terms of the literary side of things, um, without a George, I mean, you have your, for every George R.R. R. Martin, you have 15 or 20 other people that nobody's ever heard about. You know, for you know, example, you've mentioned a number of names of people that are doing your workshops that I haven't read and I'm not familiar with. How do you broaden the exposure for some of these lesser known authors that could very well be just as good as George right. R. R. Martin or Anne Lickie or, or Anne McCaffrey or any of those, but nobody knows about them? And, and I would argue that's one of the jobs of the conventions. That's something that they need to be thinking about in programming. They should have. Uh, convention programmers who say, okay, we want to make sure, like, like I mentioned Elle McKinney, uh, who is a, a writer of color uh, in uh, it's either Texas or Atlanta. I met her at uh, Atlanta uh, Multiverse. Uh, she's written this kick-ass uh, series. She's got a lot of fans uh, kind, and uh, the reason that I know about her is because I was on a panel with her. That's what people need to be doing. And one of the things that, that fantasy and science fiction needs to be remembering is that it is possible for people to be widely read and have a huge fan base and not have that fan base sort of not be part of the overall community. So, I mean, people can be like, I, do you know what I mean? It's sure. just, and, and that's, that's 
part of bringing new blood in. That's why you want to bring new new fans in. That's why you want to get them included in the programming as fast as possible and say to them, what are you reading right now that excites you? Can we bring those people in? Yeah. Are there, uh, are there discussions that you're aware of in terms of, you know, the SFWA? Because I know they've been, they've been doing some, some things as far as adjusting their requirements for memberships and that kind of thing. What can what can organizations like SFWA do to expand the 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 audience base for some of these events? Because because Worldcon is a different committee every year, so yeah. it's a different yeah. group. You're starting over. You're basically reinventing the wheel every time you do a convention. How how can some of the more some of the professional organizations augment those efforts to to broaden the fan base? I think that they need to be thinking about it in their publicity outreach, uh, that they need to be thinking about it, particularly in social media. Uh, one of uh, the efforts, for example, CIFA, when I was working with it, was maintaining a presence at the Baltimore Book Festival. And uh, one of the things uh, we did was have flyers that were reading lists, like here are 10 online stories uh, that feature neurodiverse uh, protagonists, for example, and that sort of stuff. And one of the reasons that lists, like organizations doing lists like that and, and encouraging the building of resources is that one of the reasons that we did that was because I was getting a lot of teachers coming to me and saying, I want to introduce my students to fantasy and science fiction, but there's no resources for it and there's no textbooks for it, and there's no online stuff for it. And there was, right? It was just that it's a matter of, of kind of building connections. Of right. Is, are, those, are those conversations, do those need to be had more frequently between event organizers very, at various different levels? Do you think that would help? I mean, I'm sure that there are conversations that are going on now anyway, but in terms of an online aspect of things, the marketing and the publicity and that sort of thing. It seems like you have your marketing committee, your promotions committee, and they do their thing. Uh -huh. And they're, uh -huh. they're kind of off in their bubble. And your overall broader steering committees and whatnot, yeah. maybe might not be as aware or involved as as they otherwise could be. Yeah. And so that's actually something that when I was working with CIFA, I suggested, and I don't think they've implemented it it, but I still think it's just a genius idea, is that there needs to be a volunteer who knows what everybody is doing and can go to say, you know, committee X and say, hey, committee Y is compiling this list and it's going to be of use of use so, to you guys. So mm -hmm. here it is. Or, hey, you're doing A and they're doing B and it seems to be exactly the same effort. So maybe you guys want to join uh, up on that. And I think that is part of the health of a convention is that you do need to have somebody who makes sure that, you know, each hand knows what the other hand is doing. Sure. And that when you get these huge structures where kind of nobody knows what anybody else is doing, sort of all responsibility gets abrogated at the same time in a, a kind of way that can lead to bad things. Right. Now I'm looking online here. I see, uh, you know, SFWA has, has a YouTube presence. Uh, 
Uh, I see there's there's only there's 720 subscribers. There's 66 videos. Is this kind of outreach something that helps, or is this something that that is a challenge for the organization to? You know, we need to start thinking in terms of video. Right. Yeah, right. we we write and, books, we write short stories. These are words on a page. This is <laughs> this is a this is a completely different animal here. How do you how do you change the mindset to get people framed for other kinds of media? I think that one thing the way, the way that I would kind of introduce older writers to it is I would point out that they have been doing public readings all along. Mm-hmm. And that honestly, those pub- and I would also appeal to their vanity and say, should those public readings not be recorded for posterity so in future generations can admire your words? Uh, and, I, and I think that's a natural thing for writers to put on YouTube. I mean, just absolutely. And the other thing about if you have a YouTube channel is you can also put together playlists, right? You don't even have to use your own content. And you'll notice on the CIFWA channel, one of the things that they have are playlists devoted to the different CIFWA grandmasters. So I think there's like a CJ Cherry uh, playlist. It's like, here's a whole bunch of interviews with uh, Carolyn. Right. Now, one thing that I, that I admired about DragonCon this year, uh, they had an online video presence that was fairly strong uh, in terms of all of the content because they had the current stuff that was going on. Here's, here's what's happening this year now live. And then you have some previous panel stuff, but then you also had a track for all of the old panels from previous years and what they were calling DC TV, which is basically kind of their TV land. Here are our greatest hits. And yeah. I'm and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, this could be you know this was essentially kind of what we were trying to do to start with, but again, ahead of the curve, a lot of people didn't really you know they didn't understand what we were trying to do, which yeah. is fine. Yeah. Back then, nobody was doing anything online, but but DragonCon has a really good working model. Has anybody looked at that and said that's what we should be doing? That's that worked. Let's try that. Or is any, are everybody trying to, to work in isolation and, and invent their own version of the wheel? I think there's a lot of working in isolation. I was, one of, one of the things that I appreciated this year was I thought CIFWA did an amazing job with the nebulas uh, where they didn't have that conceit, but what they had was a conceit that you were all aboard this virtual airship. And in fact, my background is uh, the airship's uh, background because I loved it so much, I've kept it. Uh, and and they, they did a great job. And I, but I think others that I have seen, people do sit down and go, okay, here's this wheel thing, we need to invent it because if no one else has ever created it and avoiding the fact that there's actually a whole bunch out rolling around in the road. Right. Uh, and I'm going to say, having been to some of these virtual, I've been to a lot of these virtual events now, right? I've been <laughs> and when they are badly run, you, it is just so profoundly irritating. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, and I look at, you know, I know and I know comic cons are different, but you look at some of the stuff that like San Diego and New York have put out and the view, mm-hmm. the view counts on them. And when you consider that these are events that bring in, uh, you know, 160, 170, yeah. 180,000 yeah. people 
And now you look at these videos that, you know, 700 views or a thousand or you know, if it's a trailer, you've got plenty more. Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't seem like uh, a lot of these events have quite figured out the 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 formula for translating that large attendance number. And even in the regional size, you know, you know, uh, Planet Comic Con here in Kansas City will get 70, 80,000 people. Right. And now the challenge is to figure out, okay, how do we take that 70 or 80,000 people and get them to our virtual site or even then bring in people from all over the world and get them in our virtual site in addition to that 80,000 that shows up in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that I think that they need to lean into the interactive uh, stuff and the fact that like, like, Hey, or live chat with Chris Hemsworth. Right. You know, that, that sort of thing. And, and, you could tape it and people are going to come back later because it's Chris Hemsworth. But uh, that's, that to me is the piece that uh, I would pay an admission uh, fee for. Right. So let me, uh, let's pivot a little bit because we haven't really talked about what you've got coming up now. You've got some, some work that's about to be published. So let's, uh, let's toot your horn for a little bit. What have you got coming out? Well, I just had a new book come out. Uh, called In the Last Trump Shall Sound, uh, with uh, I co-wrote with Harry Turtle Dove and James Morrow, which is a near future. James's is very funny. Mine is super depressing. Harry's is is very cerebral. <laughs> so if you like any of those, uh, you will like at least a third of the book. Now, uh, is is all of that alternative history? Because I know Harry delves into that quite a bit. This is all yeah. alternate parallel type stuff. It was a really interesting project because uh, the publisher, Ark Manor, basically kind of gave Harry the reins, I think. And so Harry wrote the first novella in which Oregon, California, and the state of Washington all split off from the United States and form a nation called Pacifica. And it's in reaction to there's been uh, two terms worth of, of Trump and then two terms worth of Pence. And then Pence has basically said, term limits, what are those? Uh, and so that's the point where Harry's uh, takes off. And then James's starts uh, like a year later, and then mine takes place like a year after that. Uh, and James's is, I, I will say, one of the funniest pieces I have ever read. And if you get a chance to, to poke around, I think if they have any of his readings up online, well worth checking out. Uh, so yeah, uh, that was... It was fun, but it was intimidating, right? Harry Turtledove and James Morrow, like, oh. <laughs> um, and I just had a, uh, I just turned in the f- third fantasy novel, uh, Exiles of Tibet, which will come out next May. And then I have a the space opera coming out with Tor McMillan next year that I am so excited about. I'm writing the second of those. I've got a three book deal. And I have broached uh, the possibility to them of this being a 10 book series overall. And they haven't uh, screamed and fled yet, <laughs> but uh, we'll see what happens when it comes time to negotiate. Now, how much, uh, how much of a challenge is it for the world building on the bigger, the bigger stories? Because short stories, you have this kind of self-contained environment for your characters. Mm-hmm. And there's this, this, here's the story, the beginning, middle, end, done. And then you have the broader scope that is involved, especially if you're doing a series of novels. Are you find are you finding new challenges involved in in making sure that your 
world is is properly populated and developed? I think it's not so much populated and developed as consistent in that population and development. Hmm. Um, it becomes very hard to sort of uh, track stuff. I just hit this with a book that I turned in where I have this elaborate series of particular mythology and they've all got very complicated names that you can kind of look at the morphology and break it down which I created in the second book which actually created such a huge work item in the third book that I procrastinated on it for weeks and it was basically the very last thing I did because it was such a pain in the butt. Um, it is hard I mean and you and you want to be consistent and and you don't want readers going hey in book one this is happening and, and it, because it makes them forget that they're you know even bounces them out of the story right that's the worst thing you can do well we certainly don't want that (laughs) okay and that uh your your tibet book comes out when may may uh may of 2021 and the space opera which is called you sexy thing uh, which is the name of the ship uh, that they steal uh comes out in september Okay, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we plan to have you back to talk about those when they when we get closer to publication date? Maybe we can get us a oh, review totally. copy, and awesome. uh, we will have you back. Cat Rambo, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank the you. website, kittywumpus.net, uh, for those of you who are interested in, in taking a look at her blog and, and some behind-the-scenes on, on her work. And, uh, of course, uh, we do invite everyone to subscribe to our channel. If you haven't already, give us a thumbs up on your way out. And we will do this all again starting on Monday. We've got Tartar Sauce tonight with our Doctor Who discussion uh, focused on Bill, the companion. We're going through all of the companions now. And then, of course, Good Morning Multiverse on Saturday with all the week's headlines. And don't forget the Walk and Roll and Virtual Party uh, Walk and Roll in Costumes virtual party, which is tonight at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern. And uh, we will have all of that for you as well. Some stories and uh, some some good times and some interesting costumes that are being built over there. All right, that's going to do it for us. Thanks very much for joining us today. Don't forget, you can leave a comment. You can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. And remember, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.